Now, Vivian is free to over, overrule me, but I think reading all that without amplification is deserving of a long, good nap this afternoon. <laughs> Let's pray together. Father, we ask for Your blessing to be upon not only the reading, but also the preaching of Your Word. May we see the Lord Jesus Christ this morning uh, embracing by faith and, uh, and honor Him in our thoughts, our words, our deeds, our motives. We ask in His name, Amen. One of my passions is that none of you miss the grace of God. That's probably my overriding passion as a pastor. To, to me, it would be unthinkable um, to see any one of you on the day of judgment and to be condemned into an eternity of damnation away from God's presence. This is also one of God's passions. He gives warnings, piled on warnings, urging us to flee to Him for His saving grace that is abundantly available in our Lord Jesus Christ. So for instance, here's just a few of the warnings. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Or again in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of My Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to Me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name and cast out demons in Your name and do many, many mighty works in Your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew You. Depart from Me, you workers of lawlessness. And again in 1 John chapter 2, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so it's not surprising then that we find the Apostle Paul urging the Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you were in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless indeed, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So, don't miss the grace of God. This is going to be one of the prominent applications this morning as we look at this passage. However, there are many more applications. Before we get busy in looking at the text and how this passage applies to our lives, I, I did want to say one of the things that I typically do after the sermon's basically written is I like to read another sermon or so from somebody else, see if I've missed anything, see if I'm off base. And I read 
another sermon that um, that really changed the the last third of this sermon and expanded it greatly. So I cut off everything after verse fifteen. And so we'll be looking at verses 1 through 14. Mike's saying, why couldn't you have told me that a few minutes ago? <laughs> but uh, I really wanted him to read it because I wanted you to see the full passage. And I cannot remember this pastor's name. I wanted to give him some credit, but um, it has slipped my mind. Anyway, to look at the passage, the first person that we meet here in our passage is Naaman. He was the commander of the, the army of the king of Syria. He had everything. He had position. He had esteem. He had adulation and success. He probably even had a bit of bravado. Verse 1 says that he was a mighty man of valor. But, he was a leper. After building up Naaman's resume, it's surprising to hear that he had leprosy. But that's not the most surprising thing here in verse 1. Listen to verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. This verse notes that he was used by God to give military victories to Syria. Now that's surprising. God is Israel's God. But what we learn here and what we know from Scripture is that God also directs what happens in Syria. God controls the Syrian politics and their foreign affairs. And He also controls our politics and our foreign affairs. And this is a good reminder for us. God is not just sovereign in the works uh, or in the lives of His people. He's not sovereign just in the growth of the church. His sovereignty doesn't end where the church's work stops. Our God is the God of Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. God is sovereign over that, may I say, pot-bellied dictator in North Korea. God is sovereign over the wicked terrorists blowing themselves up all over the world. He is even sovereign over the incessant leaks and innuendo-filled news reports that are filling our papers and our airways. And as disturbing as all these things are to us, we must remember that our God is sovereign. He rules over all things, all peoples, all circumstances. He has His purposes and He is working out those purposes perfectly according to His will. Verses 2 and 3 underscore this precisely. These two verses describe an unthinkable horror to any of us who are parents. The Syrians, presumably under Naaman's leadership, went on a raid into Israel and they carried off 
I'm sure among other people and other things, they carried off a little Israelite girl back to Syria. Were her parents killed in the raid? Or were they still alive in Israel grieving her abduction? We don't know. Regardless, it was a sure thing that this young girl would never see her parents again, living the rest of her life in servitude to her captors. Apparently, she was from a godly family, which was a rare thing in Israel. And she herself feared the Lord because she knew of of Elisha. And she regarded him as a true prophet of God. God allowed her to be captured, however, and carried away because He had a purpose for her. She was carried away into Syria in order that she would be there to tell Naaman about God's ability to heal his leprosy through the prophet Elisha. So there's two applications I want us to see here, and there's probably others. But uh, the two applications uh, that we learn from the captivity of this poor young girl is first, being a Christian does not exempt us from suffering grievous trials. This young girl stands as an example for us. She suffered, but she remained faithful to God in her suffering. And she even found it in her heart to love her captors enough to tell Naaman how he could be healed of his leprosy. Wow! The second application is that God sometimes brings people into His kingdom at great cost to His children. God brought Naaman into His kingdom at great cost to this poor young Israelite girl and her family. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And countless missionaries have left their loved ones and left the comforts of our country to go live in foreign lands in order to bring people into God's kingdom at great personal cost to them. We have Visitor Sunday coming up on June 11th. Jim Eggert mentioned it in the announcements. It may well be that it will cost you venturing outside your comfort zone to invite a neighbor or a co-worker to come to church. Naaman must have known his servant girl truly cared for him because when she told him about Elisha, he believed her. He must have been also quite an administrator because he methodically made sure that he could meet with Elisha. He wrote, first of all, to his own king, the king of Syria, and he said, he asked for a letter of introduction. Will you write a letter of introduction to the king of Israel so that I can go appear before him and that he can then introduce me to Elisha? He also gathered sufficient funds to buy his way through all the government red tape of the day and reward Elisha uh, after successfully healing him. It was quite a bit of silver and gold that he brought with him. 
One thing Naaman did not plan on, however, was the unbelief of the king of Israel. Elisha ministered during the reign of four different kings of Israel, uh, Joram, Jehu, Jehoahaz, and Jehoash. And I'm not sure which one of these kings was king during this time, who was the unbelieving king, frankly. Um, I think all of them (laughs) were very unbelieving. So, take your pick. And as you take your pick, let these kings of Israel be a warning to you. They were Israelites. In fact, they were kings in Israel. And the warning is that it is possible to be among God's people and yet live a life without God. Your name may be on a church roll, but do you seek to be close to Him? Do you love Him? Do you thirst for Him? Well, God overcame the king of Israel's unbelief by going around the king of Israel. God was so intent that Naaman come to trust in him that he allowed this poor girl to be abducted from Israel to be carried over into Syria away from her parents to serve in slavery all that Naaman could hear about God's love. And so he wasn't going to let this this uh, bumbling uh a fearful, unbelieving king of Israel stand in his way. He went around him by making sure that Elisha heard that Naaman had come into Israel and was looking for him. So Elisha then sent word to Naaman to come to Elisha's house. It must have been some sight for Naaman to come with his, as it says in the text, his horses, plural, his chariots, plural and come pulling up to Elisha's home. Elisha's home was undoubtedly very modest. It must have caused quite a commotion in the town where Elisha was living. It's the Hebrew custom when someone comes to visit your house that you, the the host, leaves the house, goes out to the gate or uh, up to the door and meets them and walks them back into the home. But Elisha broke protocol. Elisha did not come out to greet him. Rather, he sent a messenger to the door to tell him to go and wash in the Jordan River seven times and he would be healed of his leprosy. Well, this was guaranteed to insult Naaman. And it certainly did just that. Look at verses 11 and 12. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. The problem was not Elisha's breaking protocol, frankly. The problem, rather, was Naaman 
thought he was a big shot. And he expects for Elisha to know that he's a big shot and to treat him accordingly. But Elisha didn't even come to the door to greet him. What's happening here is God is using Elisha to teach Naaman that God does not answer according to our plans. We answer to His plans. We answer to His Word. Have you ever gotten upset at God because He didn't work things out according to your expectations? Have you ever preconceived how God ought to work His will in your life only than to be disappointed afterwards? Have you ever said, I trusted God and He let me down? There's another lesson that Elisha was teaching Naaman that we would do well to learn. God is not as broad-minded as sometimes we think He is. Elisha was very specific. Go wash in the Jordan seven times. But look again at verse 12. Naaman says, are not, the, are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? In other words, why must it be the Jordan River? Why is it one river as good as the next? In our relativistic age, we are apt to think one version of the truth is as good as another. And one religion will get me to heaven just as well as another. Who we are as who are we as Christians? People might think to have a corner on the market when it comes to having a relationship with God. How can we as Christians think that we have the only way? But Jesus said in John fourteen verse six, "I am the way." and the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through Me. And Peter said in Acts 4.12, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. God is not broad-minded when it comes to His truth, and there is no room for negotiation. Another reason Naaman was outraged was the simplicity of Elisha's instruction. In verse 11, Naaman said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Instead, Elisha said, Wash and be clean. For anyone to come to Christ, they must cross the same three bridges that Elisha and therefore God expected Naaman to cross. First, you must humble yourself. No matter how accomplished, no matter how well thought of you are by others, you must realize that you are a sinner. That you are a rebel against God. That you are a child of wrath according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. In other words, outside of Christ, 
You are a zero before God. You have nothing that can recommend you to God. You only deserve hell. I only deserve hell outside of Jesus Christ. So you must humble yourself and receive God's assessment about you. Yes, God, your assessment about me is true. I am a sinner. I am unworthy of being led into your presence. I am unworthy of being loved by you. That's humbling. And that's the first bridge that Naaman had to cross. He had to realize he wasn't the big shot that he thought he was. That God is infinitely bigger than him. The second bridge you must cross is that you must recognize and confess that there is only one Savior, only one way to God. You know, only two people can pay for your sins. But only one can finish the payment and satisfy God. You can pay for your sins for an eternity in hell, but never fully finish the payment because God is infinitely holy. But Jesus Christ, God the Son who took on human flesh to be our substitute, He can fully pay fully, completely, perfectly pay the price for your sins. And the payment that He met on the cross, the payment He made on the cross, fully satisfied the Father. That's why He said, it is finished. That's why the veil in the temple tore from the top down to the bottom to to signify that Christ had paid the full penalty. And then His resurrection from the grave guaranteed it. There is nothing, there is no one who is able to pay that price except the Lord Jesus Christ. So are you trusting in Him? Or are you trusting in yourself? Are you trusting in your church membership? Are you trusting in that tithe um, that you put in the plate as it came by? Are you trusting in your heritage? There is no one, no thing, nothing except Jesus Christ. Are you trusting in Him? The third bridge you must cross is that you must embrace the simplicity of the Gospel. Naaman thought Elijah would have a big ceremony with all these smells and bells. But Elisha simply said, wash and be clean. Trusting in Jesus Christ is so simple. It's fleeing to Him. It's entrusting yourself to Him. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, I must ask you, why not? Don't miss the grace of God. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. I love what Ray Dillard said about this passage. He said, Wash in the Jordan and be cured of leprosy? What a preposterous idea. I can think of I can't think of anything more ridiculous. Well, maybe one thing is more ridiculous 
the idea that putting your trust and faith in a man executed on a cross almost 2,000 years ago can give you a renewed life now, forgiveness from sins, resurrection from the dead, and eternal life? Well, don't that just beat all? I want to conclude this sermon by pointing to the only other time that this particular Naaman is mentioned in the Bible. There's other guys named Naaman that appear from time to time. But this particular guy named Naaman appears in 2 Kings chapter 5. But then also, Jesus mentions him in Luke chapter 4, in verse 27. He mentioned this Naaman while he was visiting his hometown of Nazareth. And Jesus said, There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. It seems like a simple statement, doesn't it? But listen how the people of Nazareth responded to this statement. The next verse, verse 28, When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. These are people that he grew up with. These are people that watched him grow up. And it says all in the synagogue were filled with wrath and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down off the cliff. What is it about this statement that elicited such a response? Well, they weren't upset because Jesus showed mercy to a Gentile. But because Jesus said, I'm sorry, they weren't upset because Elisha showed mercy. They weren't upset at Jesus because God showed mercy to a Gentile named Naaman. Sorry, it took me two or three times to get that out. But because Jesus said that God cleansed Naaman while bypassing Israel, well, that was unacceptable. Israelite lepers stayed lepers. God cleansed a pagan leper. God turned away from Israel when He extended grace to Naaman. That's why they got so upset. He was saying, God loved Naaman and He rejected His own people because His own people had rejected Him. So let me ask you as I conclude, are there any of you who have been raised in the church or who attend regularly but are being bypassed by God's grace while God seeks and saves others? While God seeks and saves people outside the church, pagans outside the church, Are you going to miss His grace? I implore you, do not miss the grace of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we see God's grace to Naaman, a Gentile. Lord, we identify with Him because we ourselves are Gentiles. But Lord, we also identify with Him because we are prideful people like He was, often trying to tell you what's what and what you can do and what you cannot do when it comes to our lives. 
even sometimes trying to be our own Savior. Lord, forgive us. Humble us. Help us to all trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, it is my earnest prayer that none would miss the grace of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.